Yes, he was. The Yecheska was told to go to Tel Aviv to deliver this this prophecy of Kinim Vehege Vehi, which uh, is a dark prophecy, in order to get people to even try to even think about doing teshuva, even though the likelihood of that happening was very small. Um, Yecheskel went, uh, he didn't have any choice, he was taken there. Um, but when he got there, he was silent for all seven days that he was there. Eventually, after seven days, God says to him, listen, uh, this is not uh, the correct behavior. Uh, I want you to come meet me in the Bika, in the valley, in the plain. And uh, he met him. And uh, he's in the process of telling him uh, now to uh, isolate himself, which is something we all understand, uh, to go into Bidud and isolate him, himself in the house. That was the previous verse, verse 25. And now he's telling him in verse 26, uh, uh, you shall not speak. Uh, your tongue shall cling to your palate. B'nei lamto, you'll become mute. Uh, you won't be a- allowed to rebuke the Jewish people anymore. Ki base Mary because they are a bunch of rebels, a uh, house of rebellion. And uh, the question I left you with last time is, why the 180 degree turn by God? God was very anxious for, uh, previously, for Yechezkel, to go to Tel Aviv, to bring rebuke, bring the prophecy to the Jewish people about, about what lay ahead for them if they didn't do some type of hirhur, some, some type of acknowledgement that what their, that their behavior was inappropriate. And now all of a sudden, Yechezkel refuses to do so, or he's silent, he wouldn't deliver the prophecy, and God goes uh, in completely the opposite direction. He tells Yechezkel, you're not allowed to prophesy to the Jewish people. Because Kibes Merihayo, because they're a bunch of rebels. So we have to really try and understand, get behind the reason why God, so to speak, makes this U turn. Um, and now we have a situation where, as before, uh, God desperately wanted Yechezkel to give over the prophecy, and now he's banned from doing so. So um, up to this point, as we mentioned, God's strategy, even, uh, even though this generation was steeped in evil, Nevertheless, God wanted them to know that he was still watching over them. And the way he demonstrated this was up until now, right up, to, up until this moment, which is a, a five years into the exile, the first exile in Babylonia, um, to have a prophet come and rebuke them. That gate, obviously, uh, it wasn't nice to be rebuked, but it also it, what it did is it showed the Jewish people that God was still thinking about them. Um, and it also gave them at least a chance to consider doing teshuva, uh, something we don't have the privilege of today. We don't have any prophets coming to speak to us. Um, but suddenly, uh, seemingly only after Yechezkel failed to deliver his message to Tel Aviv, God's decided that the, the Jews no longer deserve to have a prophet and come rebu- and rebuke them after all. And the question is, what's changed? Like, why should the Jews suffer from not hearing from the prophecy or rebuke of Yechezkel, just because Yechezkel didn't do what he was told to do. So I'm going to give you two answers to this question. One of them is, uh, I wouldn't call it superficial, because it's uh, the words of Rashi, and um, the words of the Akedas Yitzchak, one of the great philosophers. Um, But it's not as deep as the second answer. So 
the first answer is like this. Um, the reasons for God's U-turn, so to speak, in, in terms of Yechezkel. So we know from the Torah that when Moshe was uh, on, on Mount Sinai with God um, and the Jews started to build and revere and worship, whether they worshipped it or not is open to question, but they certainly built built and revered a golden calf. God tells Moshe the following words. This is in Shemos in chapter 32. He says, Lech raid, go down, leave me, get lost. Lech raid, kishiches amcho, because your people have been become uh, corrupt. You know the ones I'm talking about, the ones that you brought out from Egypt. So it's interesting, Rab Soloveitchik, uh, on this posuk, on this words, lech raid, kishiches, go down, leave, leave me, because the people have become corrupt. He said the word raid, reish dalad, stands for rabbi doctors. When the Jews become rabbi, I think they're rabbi doctors, so that's, uh, that's not good news. That's Shichet Amcha. That everybody wants to be a rabbi doctor. Rabbi doctor this, rabbi doctor that. He says rabbi doctor is not, uh, not what we're after. Rabbi is what we're after. Doctors is something different. Anyway, so God says he's got to get lost. Go down. So Rashi says um, on that posuk, why Moshe had to leave God's presence. When, when the people were sitting with the golden calf. So Rashi says, Migdulosko, you've got to lower yourself. You're not fit to be here anymore. Your greatness, Moshe Rabbeinu, is due to them. But Osashashin is Nada Moshe Mipi based in Shamala. And you, Moshe Rabbeinu, you don't deserve to be here with me because of the behavior of your people. Notice the posset, actually, God tells him it's your people. And uh, we have this all the time with our spouses and our children, uh, grandchildren even. It's, um, when, it's, uh, when the kids are, uh, are doing well, so it's my kid. Look what my kid did. Right? And then when you're talking to your, your spouse and the, the child's done something wrong, look at what your child did today. So that's God. God's got the same uh, motif. Uh, your people are, are corrupt. You know, the ones you brought up from the land of Egypt. So Rashi's message here is that uh, he's telling you a golden rule, that a Jewish leader can be demoted in God's eyes, so to speak, by the behavior of his charges. If uh, a Jewish leader is misbehaving, if, if the Jewish people are misbehaving, so that, so to speak, demotes the leader in the eyes of God. And, and the, the thing that Rashi makes clear is this also works in reverse. That uh, people can suffer the consequences of their leader's misbehavior and denied access to God's supervision. And that's something we see in Bamidbar. Um, it's interesting that in Bamidbar, uh, right at the end of Bamidbar, we have stories of the Jewish people on the verge of entering the land of Israel and they have to go through various countries. They have to go through the land of Edom. They have to go to the land of Emory. And um, they have to go to uh, Sich- through the land of Sichon, Melech Mori. And the Posik says there in chapter 21, Vayishlach Yisrael Malachim El Sichon Melech Mori. God, uh, Israel sent messengers to Sichon, the king of the uh, Amori. 
So Rashi there says, on this posuk, Vayishlach Yisrael Malachim, he says it's very strange because in another place, the sending of messages is attributed to Moshe Rabbeinu. <coughs> when, it, <coughs> when it came to send messengers to the people of Edom, it doesn't say Vayishlach Yisrael, that Israel sent messengers. It says Vayishlach Moshe Malachim, that Moshe sent messengers. So Rashi says there, the reason for this is that the reality is that Moshe is Israel and Israel is Moshe. The leader and the people are indivisible. Um, and the reality is, is that the uh, leader of the generation is equal to the entire generation because the leader is everything. So if, if, if the leader is on the right track, leading by example, so to speak, the, ne- the nation will follow. And the reverse is true as well. So we can start to see what's unfolding here. And as I said, it's um, really a, a little bit superficial. But uh, the Akedas Yitzchok um, comments on this Rashi and comments on our situation. He says, history shows that whenever a Jewish king or a leader or a prophet treated Torah and God's word as the most precious possession, uh, uh, as his most precious possession, and the source of his inspiration, so did his people. On the other hand, as soon as the king, the leader, the prophet, ignored the Torah or the direct word of God, the people were not long following suit. The result was usually disastrous and not too long in coming. The reason that the king, the leader, the prophet, is uh, elected or put, put up there as a model for how to treat the Torah and the word of God is simply that this king, this leader, this prophet is symbolic of the security of the entire nation. When the aging King David could no longer actively participate in battle without endangering his life, his generals were concerned to keep him in a safe place, pointing out that his personal safety was the key to the nation's success in battle and uh, to the maintenance of uh, morale among the population. And uh, he quotes the Gomorrah in Erechim, it's a very strange Gemara, but uh, the Gemara says in Erechim on Daf Yud Zion, each generation according to its leaders, meaning that the fate of the generation is in large, uh, in large measure due to the actions of its leaders. So one of the answers that's given here is this. The fate of the Jews here, that they are suddenly denied access to a prophet uh, by God, is due, one could say, as a result of Yechezkel's refusal to speak out in Tel Aviv and fulfill his duty. He is the leader. When he goes down a step, when he goes down, he's demoted, so to speak, as Yechezkel seems to be here, then the, the, uh, the destiny of the whole of the Jewish people are affected. So when the Possek says here that uh, God is telling Yechezkel to go into his house and uh, become mute, he's not even allowed to speak to anybody, Kibes Mary Hamar, because they are a house of rebels, that includes Yechezkel. Yechezkel is the leader. Yechezkel is the number one man in Israel. And if he can't, if he can't follow God's orders, then the rest of the nation will suffer as a result of it. So it's not that the Jewish people, anything has changed with them. It's just that the leader... Yechezkel has refused an order, and by refusing an order, he is putting his own people at risk. That's one way of looking at it. And as I said, it's slightly superficial, and there's a much deeper uh, lesson to be learned here, and it's a lesson that 
people find very, very difficult to uh, ingest, digest. Um, but it's absolutely true. And uh, so I'm going to examine this this idea with you. Uh, I'll say it slowly because it, it, it can be a little bit complicated to understand. And I do, I, I do really want everybody to understand all the material. So um, let's just go back to Tel Aviv. Let's examine what happened in Tel Aviv, not from the perspective of God or from the perspective of Yechezkel, but from the perspective of the Jews living there. Remember, there's this outpost, uh, a town called Tel Aviv that was created by Jews to remind themselves of the fact that they're living in a tell, uh, a ruin, and the Aviv, the redemption, is in a different country. It's in the land of Israel. So they're living there. And one day the great prophet Yechezkel arrives. Um, and then to their surprise, uh, when they're fully expecting him to speak, uh, he doesn't utter one word for seven days. As verse 15 in this chapter says, Yechezkel says, I sat there for seven days, uh, completely silent among them. Question is, what must they have thought about that? They're looking at uh, the situation and the supreme leader of Israel, the greatest man of his generation, arrives unexpectedly in the city. And not only does he arrive, but he arrives by supersonic means. As we learned in verse 14, it wasn't, He didn't walk there, he didn't go in a bus, he didn't get a train there. He was picked up. He was picked up by some type of supernatural... Um, experience and dropped off in Tel Aviv and the people see this and when he gets there he says nothing to them and they're looking at themselves and uh, the people must have been very confused about what's going on because you have the leader of Israel arriving especially at a time of Golas especially at a time of exile exile uh, they would have automatically assumed that Yechezkel wasn't there for a break he wasn't there for a holiday but had come to deliver some sort of message from God. And yet he's, he just sits there. He sits there and he says nothing for seven days. And they're thinking to themselves, they're thinking to themselves what on earth is he, is he up to? Then subsequently, after seven days, God, so to speak, whispers in his ear, reminds him that he's a leader of Israel with the responsibility to speak to these people, which is verse 17, when God says to him, Ben Odom, he calls Yechezkel again, Ben Adam, son of man, Tzofa Nesatich Alebeis Yisrael. I made you the Tzofa. I made you the overlord, the, the person that watches out for the, for the uh, Jewish people. And your job is to admonish them. Um, and you're not doing it. And then follows four verses of Musa, which we dealt with in great detail, verses 18 to 21, um, where he tells him that uh, it's not only the job of a prophet, it's the job of every Jew to warn other Jews about misconduct. And uh, you're a prophet, you're one of the greatest prophets, and you're not doing your job. Uh, and then God tells him to leave Tel Aviv and meet him in the plain, in the valley, in the Bikah, uh, which is where they are now. This is where we are now. God's speaking into the Bikar. He tells him to go to his house and to shut himself up in his house. And he's not allowed to speak to anybody. He's not allowed to rebuke anybody. So let's reflect. 
If God would now instruct Yechezkel to return to Tel Aviv and give over his message and prophecy, it's reasonable to assume that the people of Tel Aviv would be extremely confused, even more confused than they were first time round. After all, they could argue, listen, Yechezkel was here for seven days and he said nothing. Now, all of a sudden, he's come back and we just can't stop him talking. We can't stop him prophesying. We can't stop him rebuking us. We start, can't stop him preaching. Where was all this outpouring of prophecy last week when he was here for a week and said nothing? It wouldn't be unreasonable to assume that the people of Tel Aviv might rationalize the truth. The truth being that Yechezkel was really supposed to have given over this message last week. But for some reason he refused to do so. And maybe he even disobeyed God. Um, that is not a rationalization or deduction that God wants the Jews to arrive at, even if it is true, because it demeans Yechezkel's authority in particular and Jewish leadership in general. So we have what we have essentially here is God using the f- bad free will choice of Yechezkel to push his own agenda. I'll say that again. What we're going to see here is God using the bad free will choice of Yechezkel. Yechezkel had a choice. He was told to go and give prophecy in Tel Aviv. That is a question of free will. He can do it or he can choose not to do it. He chose the wrong option. God is going to now use that bad free will choice to push push his own agenda. What is God's own agenda here? So we're going to see. Um, and this this idea is one of the foundational paradoxes that is forever present when we're trying to rationalize our interaction with God, with God, because God has got an agenda. God has got a project. God wants certain things to be. That agenda and that project will always come to fruition one way or another. Um, and this is uh, made very clear by Shlomo Melech. Shlomo Melech says in Mishle, in chapter 19, something we know very well, a verse in Mishle, in Proverbs, verse 19, verse, uh, of chapter 19, verse 21, Rabbo, Rabbo's There are many thoughts in a man's heart. But it's God's plan that will come to fruition, which uh, is a paradox, right? Because we've got free will. We've got self-determination or limited self-determination. We can decide to daven or not to daven, to go to shul or not to go to shul, to speak out when God tells us to or not to. And despite the fact that we've got free will and we can choose to disobey what God says, and again, I'll repeat, the Torah is an authority, not a power. This is something that's very important. The Torah is God's authority. The Torah is God's authority to tell you how to behave. The power is in your hands. The power whether to pay attention to that authority is entirely in your hands. You can choose to ignore it or you can choose to obey it. Um, and that's free will. But the uh, issue is uh, for every free will choice there are consequences. If you ignore the Torah there are bad consequences. If you obey the Torah, there are good consequences. But nevertheless, we have the free choice. And yet, Mishlei, Shlomo Melech, is telling you that Rabbos Mokshavos Belevish, a person's got the ability to choose what he wants to do, but nevertheless, God's agenda 
God's plan, God's project will always come to fruition. So this is what the Malbim says there. This is the Malbim on that pasuk in um, in Mishlei. He says, Rabbos Mokshavos Belevish, Hamachashavos, these thoughts, Umasha Odom Choshev called Sadade or Efshari Lagi Al Yedela Eza Tachlis. Man's got the ability to think of various ways uh, to achieve what he wants to achieve, and he's unlimited by that ability to choose which direction he wants to. The Haim Rabbos, and there are many. A man could, has got uh, a multitude of choices throughout his life, throughout his day. In an hour, we make many free will choices. The Haim Belevish, and they're in the heart of man. Because man is given free will to choose exactly which direction he wants to go in. With taking all this into account, Even though he will not always choose the correct manner, the correct path, the correct mode of action, that will result in him attaining the optimum result for himself. Sometimes he'll make the right decision, sometimes he'll make the wrong decision. Nevertheless, whatever decision he makes as an individual, or the people make as a collective, because despite the fact that free will is in the hands of man, Gomar the end of the issue will always fall out as God planned it. Uve inyonim hakulolim shealehem to fear atzas Hashem haashkocha tokum usavatel habechira. And sometimes, because God's will, God's agenda, God's purpose has to be fulfilled, sometimes it God will cancel man's free choice. That is the paradox. The paradox is very clear. At one and the same time, each and every human being has free will and can choose to do or refrain from any action that he decides to do or not to do. But no matter what choices he makes, where or not he, we, no matter what choices we make, God's agenda, God's project will always be fulfilled. God's end game will always be as it was supposed to be. Even if that means God removes free will for a period of time, and God can do this even without a person knowing that his free will has been compromised. And a person can still believe that he is taking a free will action. Now, this is completely different from Paro, uh, from last week's parasha, by Hazekas Lake Paro. What the Malbum here is talking about, and what we're talking about here, is a person can actually believe he is taking a free will decision and be judged on that free will decision that he took. And at the end of the day, he was not making a free will decision. He, what he was indulging in was Hobson's choice. He had no um, alternative, even though he didn't know that he had no alternative. I'm going to give you an analogy uh, to this idea. Um, it comes from... Um, one of the great, um, one of the great philosophers of the twentieth uh, century, an individual called Harry Frankfurt. If you knew I was using this, he's a confirmed Jewish but confirmed atheist. Uh, if you knew I was doing that, using his uh, analogy as uh, uh, a 
in reference to God, he'd be most dis- dissatisfied. But this is the analogy that he gives. Listen, listen to this. We're talking about the ability of God to make sure his plan comes to fruition, despite the fact that he has infringed upon a person's free will, and the person doesn't even recognize or know that his free will has been infringed upon, and the person will be subject to punishment because of the free will decision he thought he was making, whereas in reality he had no free will to make. So that seems like a complete and utter paradox. Here's the example. Any, before I give you the example, any questions up to here? Okay, I didn't think there would be. Okay. This is the analogy. And this is a, a famous analogy, again, of Professor Harry Frankfurt uh, of Princeton, Princeton University. Um, you're sitting reading a book. You're very engrossed in the book. You're enjoying the book. Um, let's say we're talking about a time before there were mobile phones and um, you're sitting quite comfortably in your house or in your apartment. You're reading a book and you look at your watch and it's 2.30 and you know you've made arrangements to see your friend at 5.30. And you know if you leave the house at 5 o'clock, you'll get there in plenty of time to meet your friend at 5.30. So you sit there, you're reading your book and there's 120 pages to read in your book. And uh, it now gets to 3.30, and you've got uh, 90 pages to read. Now it gets to 4.30, and there's 62 pages to read, and the book's very engrossing. And uh, you think to yourself, well, you know, uh, I'm going to have to leave at 5 o'clock to get there for 5.30 to meet my friend. Um, You know, I either better hurry up reading this book or put it down and get ready. But you carry on reading because you're so engrossed in the book. And it gets to five o'clock or five to five. And you realize you've got to get up and go. But there's still 35, 40 pages to read in the book. And it's very exciting. And you can't put it down. So you figure to yourself, you know what I'll do? I'll carry on reading to 5.15. And then if I run rather than walk, I'll still make it for 5.30. Comes 5.13, 5.14. And there's still 20 pages of the book to read. And uh, you can't put it down. And uh, you make a decision. And the decision you make is, I'll take the consequences. I'm not going to go meet my friend. I'm going to finish reading this book. And, uh, you know, I know I'm doing the wrong thing. And uh, later on, I'll apologize uh, to my friend for not meeting them at 5.30. In the intervening time, some school children... Uh, who have come home from school during the afternoon, maybe about 3.30, 4 o'clock or 4.30, um, are going around the area. They've just discovered super glue. And what they've done is they put super glue in this guy's lock of his front door so that the super glue has dried into his lock. And even if he would have got up at 5 o'clock or 5.15 and left, he would never have got there on time because he would have been unable to open his front door. So you have a situation here where an individual, believing he's got free choice to go and meet his friend or not go and meet his friend, makes a bad free will decision, unaware that his bad free will decision will not affect the outcome of his afternoon. In other words, 
If he would have chose, if he's chosen badly not to go and meet his friend, he could have chosen wisely to go and meet his friend. But either, either decision would result in his inability to go and meet his friend. The fact is, he doesn't know that. At the time, he doesn't know that. And as a result of that, when he discovers that there's uh, super glue in his lock, and he, he reflects that had he, had he uh, decided to go and meet his friend, he would have been unable to do so, he will reflect that that doesn't detract from the, fra- the fact that he made a free will decision to disappoint his friend. And as a result of that, he owes his friend an apology. The fact that his free will to, to fulfill his um, commitment to meet his friend was an impossible task doesn't detract from the fact that he owes his friend an apology because it was his own free will decision not to go. Even though that free will decision had already been compromised beyond his understanding. He didn't know that it would be impossible to do so, be impossible to leave his house. Nevertheless, he is still responsible to give an apology to his friend. So here you have a situation, uh, again, described by Harry Frankfurt, of a situation where a person's free will can be compromised, even though they don't know it's been compromised, leading to an event that is an impossibility, uh, uh, a culmination of events that are an impossibility. And despite the fact that this guy's free will has been taken away, nevertheless, he owes an apology. And in the case of an Aveira, you would be responsible for making the wrong free will choice. So that is his example. Our example, our example of this idea comes from the book of Shmuel. Very, very famous example. Is everybody with me so far? Has anybody got any questions uh, uh, before we continue? No. Okay. Okay. We've got a classic example of this idea. And remember, we're trying to show that the paradox of God, uh, so to speak, of what the Shlomo Melch is talking about, Rabbas Machshavas Belevish, a human being's got to the ability to think out for himself and do what he wants to do, but at the end of the day, God's agenda, God's um, project, God's uh, ideal idea will always come into fruition. That paradox, um, I've just given you one example of why it's not really a paradox, but uh, a more uh, Jewish example comes from the book of Shmuel, chapter 24, Verses 13 and 14. And the backdrop to the story is Shaul HaMelech, the first king of Israel, has got David HaMelech, the second king of Israel, on the run. It's his, David HaMelech is his son-in-law. David HaMelech, he, Shaul believes, because of his uh, depression, believes that David is a danger to the crown, believes David is a rebel, believes David is pl- planning a coup against him. So he's chased him uh, down to Ein Gedi where Shol HaMelech stopped off at a cave to relieve himself. Unbeknownst to him, David HaMelech is inside the cave with his merry men, and David HaMelech has got the opportunity to kill him. And David does not take the opportunity. All he does is he cuts the corner off Shol's garment in order to let him know that he could have killed him. And uh, when Shol emerges from the cave, David emerges after him. 
And David calls it over to him and says to him as follows. Yishpot Hashem, Hashem Beini Uvencho. Let God judge between me and you. Unikomani Hashem Mimeko. And may God avenge me of you. Vyodi lo siyeboch. That my hand will not be upon you. Ka'ashe yoma moshol hakadmoni. Because this is the proverb of ancient times. Merishoim yetze resha. Vyodi lo siyeboch. That from the wicked comes forth wickedness. And from my hand will not, but my hand will not be upon you. So, what is this Moshal Hakadmoni? He said, the ancient proverb. David is justifying what he did. He had the opportunity to kill the guy that was trying to kill him, Shol HaMelech. And he says, uh, I've got no business killing you because of the Moshal Hakadmoni, the ancient proverb. So, uh, the Gemara wants to know what this Moshal Hakadmoni is, this ancient proverb. What is it? So, the Gemara says, Omar Abshim ben Lokish, Reish Lokish. He says, Reish Lokish says, the Moshal Hakadmoni, the ancient proverb is the Torah itself, which states, with regard to an unintentional murderer, remember we've got a rule, that if somebody kills somebody unintentionally, they have to go to a city of refuge. They're not executed. Unintentional murder is still murder. But... uh, the perpetrator is not executed. Rather, he's sent to a city of refuge, of which there were 48, originally three, and then finally 48, um, as the Torah describes in Shemoth. V'asher lo uh, This person, lo tzoda, he, he, this, this wasn't premeditated murder. He didn't intend to kill um, this person. V'ho elokim ino liyodo. God brought it into his hand. Wow. Does the Torah really say that? That this murderer, the reason why this murderer, this unintentional murderer, is sent to an Ir HaMiklot, to a city of refuge, is because Vashelo Tzodok, the person that did the killing, he's not really responsible. Why? Because God brought this action into his hand. Therefore, says God, I'll make you a place for that person to which he can flee, which is the city of refuge. So the Gemara is like very confused. Like, uh, why would God cause one person to sin in this manner by killing accidentally? Uh, the, the Torah actually says it. That God, uh, so to speak, has caused inadvertently, this person to kill, so cause this person to kill inadvertently. Like, it's not free will decision. This person was destined, so to speak, to kill this other person, despite his free will. Very, very strange. So, the Gomorrah is very confused by this posuk, this Moshal Hakadmoni, um, which is exactly what David's asking for. David, David Amalek is saying to Shaul, the Moshal Akadmoni is, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, uh, kill you, Shaul. Let God do that. Just like the Torah says, the Moshal Akadmoni, the Torah says when somebody needs to be killed, so God arranges for someone to kill him. But that person isn't going to be me. So, the Gemara quotes the Possum, Moshal Akadmoni. Um, that evil incidents befall those who have already sinned. 
As the Pesach says, Mereshoim Yetzir Resha. Because of the evil, so because of a free will decision to do evil, so evil will come upon you. That's the Moshal Hakadmoni. That God will sort it out. Um, and he says, Reish Lakish says in the Gemara over there, in this light, when the Potok says, Kim God caused this person to um, inadvertently kill another person, uh, we can understand it. What scenario, says the Gemara, is the verse speaking about? And the Gemara gives you an example. So I've given you Harry Frankfurt's example. Now here's the Gemara's example. Uh, regarding two people, each who each killed a person. One killed a person unintentionally, and there were no witnesses, while the other person killed somebody intentionally, premeditated murder, and there were also no witnesses. Says the Gomorrah, as a result uh, of there being no witnesses to either the premeditated murder or the accidental uh, killing, neither of them received the appropriate punishment of either exile to a city of refuge for the accidental killer, or execution for the premeditated killer, because that requires witnesses. Says the Gemara, at this point, God takes a hand and summons them both. In other words, he compromises their free will. He summons them both to one ill, uh, to one in. This is what the Possek means, God, so to speak, intervenes. God wants a solution here. The person who is killed inadvertently deserves to be in a city of refuge. The person that has murdered premeditatedly deserves to be killed. There are no, there's no basting that can sit and, and deal with either case. And therefore, God, so to speak, God accepts responsibility for what happens next. Says the Gemara, at this point, God takes a hand and summons both these killers, the inadvertent and the premeditated killer, to one in. They think they're making free will decisions to go there. But it's God that plants the plan um, that they ultimately cannot resist. When they both reach the city chosen by God, the person who killed, who killed intentionally the premeditated murderer chooses, so to speak, to sit under a ladder. And simultaneously, the person who killed unintentionally decides to descend the ladder. As he descends, he trips and falls on top of the intentional killer, the premeditated killer, using him as a, um, so to speak, to break his fall. But in doing so, he kills the intentional killer. There were witnesses, plenty of witnesses to that incident, and therefore... What the end game will be is the person who originally uh, killed unintentionally ends up, um, sorry, the person who killed originally intentionally, the premeditated killer, ends up dead, being executed, as the Torah requires. And the person who originally killed unintentionally is exiled because witnesses have seen him unintentionally tripping on this ladder and killing this other person. And each person ends up receiving what he deserved. So God's message here to Shoal is in the end, God, the Moshal Hakadmoni, the ancient proverb, will make sure that Shoal gets his just desserts.
So this is uh, the analogy, the Gemara's analogy is not similar to Harry Frankfurt's. There are a lot of differences, which is why I brought them both. But what we see here is there are certain situations where God, God's, so to speak, plan, agenda, outcome has to be achieved. And if that involves, so to speak, um, compromising an individual's free will, even though their free will is unknowingly, they don't know that their free will has been compromised, they think they're making free will decisions. Nevertheless, God's, so to speak, God's agenda, God's plan will always be fulfilled. What God wants out of, an ev- out, of an ev- out of an event will always come to fruition. Now, I've given you, I brought the example of Harry Frankfurt to the guy that's reading a book and makes a free will decision not to meet his friend uh, without realizing that he wouldn't have been able to meet his friend anyway. And I brought this example from the Gomorrah they're two very different examples. <clears throat> They're both really designed to explain the same thing. That uh, at the end of the day, uh, what, whereas man does have free will, and even though when, he, when, when, when his free will is compromised, nevertheless, that doesn't mean he isn't responsible for his actions. Um, there is a little bit of a problem with this story from the Gomorrah Maccus. Has anybody seen... The problem with the story in the Gemara and Maccus. Just uh, review the uh, the circumstances. You have two killers. One's killed I- uh, intentionally, and one's killed unintentionally. So neither of them were subject to uh, witnesses. So neither of them can be punished. So the unintentional killer is not sent to the Irmiklot to the city of refuge, and the intentional premeditated killer is not executed by Bastin. So God, so to speak, arranges it. So they'll both arrive at this particular inn at the same time. The uh, premeditated killer will be sitting on a bench. Uh, above, High above him, the unintentional killer will be coming down the ladder and slip, trip, fall, land on the intentional killer, killing him uh, in front of many witnesses so that uh, justice for both of them will prevail. The person who killed uh, intentionally the premeditated murder will end up dead. And the unintentional killer will end up in the city of refuge having killed someone unintentionally by the fact that he had a trip. Now that also, that is, seems to be a very straightforward example of inobiodo. God will, so to speak, interfere with people's free will even though they don't know it. And that action, those actions, those... Fr- Free will actions that were actually not free will actions, but as far as the participants were concerned, were free will actions, will result, it will result in them having to pay a price. Now, what's wrong with that second story? What's wrong with that story? Ah, oh, fantastic. Joe, fantastic. Okay. So at this point, which is, this is one of the reasons why I gave you the first example, the Harry Frankfurt example. Because in this case, in the Gomorrah, it throws up a real big problem. Because as noted by the Orachayim, um, he, he, he spotted something very strange in the story that Jones spotted as well. Um, he says, this marshal in the Gomorrah, we end up with the intentional killer being killed by the unintentional killer 
in front of witnesses and justice seems to have been served because the intentional killer is effectively executed and the unintentional killer ends up in the city of refuge where he belongs. But this does not seem very satisfactory because while it is true that the intentional murderer winds up getting his just desserts, the unintentional killer, however, has now committed two unintentional killings and has to atone for only one by going to the city of refuge. So the correct explanation, as the Orochaim says, is that the person who was originally killed by the... Uh, actually, I'm not going to go into, but he, uh, into his solution because it really doesn't concern us. He comes up with a different way to understand the Gemara. But the point, of, uh, and it's very well noticed, Joe, not, not, not many people notice that problem in the, uh, in the story. But what comes out of the story in the Gemara, and what comes out of the example of Harry Frankfurt, is the idea that God, so to speak, God's <coughs> plans always come to fruition. Aye, people have got free will. Yeah, people have got free will. And sometimes that free will is compromised <coughs> without them knowing about it. And despite the fact that their free will is compromised, the very fact that it's compromised without them knowing about it doesn't, doesn't mean they aren't responsible for their actions because from their perspective, they've made a free will decision to do the right thing or to do the wrong thing. The fact that they couldn't have achieved what they wanted to achieve is irrelevant, irrelevant to the fact that they made a free will decision either to do it or not to do it. Um, a, a, a more commonplace example, uh, if you want to think of it like that, uh, or a more uh, uh, um, uh, contemporary example is of a professional thief uh, who eyes up two potential targets. You know, he's got, uh, you know, he's a burglar <clears throat> and there's two houses he's got his eye on. <coughs> God may well put into the mind of the thief to steal from Ringo, who's a rich man who earned his money in criminal fashion and he, he deserves to lose his ill-gotten gains, rather than George, who earned all his money honestly and doesn't deserve to lose his money. Now, if you reflect on that, the burglar is a burglar. He intends to burgle, right? And whether he's free will, free will choice of who he burgles here uh, is compromised by God is irrelevant because the reality is he's made a free will decision to steal. God may well put it into his mind to steal from a person that God wants him to steal from and so to speak kill two birds with one stone Um uh, rather than steal from a guy who's a 100% honest who doesn't deserve to be robbed. But either way, the, robber, the fact that the robber, the burglar's free will has been compromised here does not detract at all from his responsibility from the fact that he's, he's a burglar and he's burgled somebody's house, even though the, the person he burgled deserved to be burgled. Nevertheless, burglary is a crime. So this is something that happens all the time. The problem is we can never know when God does this. It's not within our remit to assign some sort of blame to the victims of crime. In other words, we can't say, it, God forbid, we should be saying to somebody who is a victim of crime, oh, probably deserved it, right? Probably deserved it because, uh, you know, God's, God's had his eye on him for some time for something else. That, that is definitely not true. We are duty-bound as is the halacha, under all circumstances, to feel sorry, sorry for any victim of crime, any victim of theft. 
and we must never judge him in this way. All that I'm doing here is giving you a sort of a crack, like an, an opening into God's modus operandi, that God can have his cake and eat it. He can give you free will. He can, but, and he can compromise that free will to, in order to create a situation where his plan is achieved, is brought to fruition. And nevertheless, you can be held responsible for your free will decision that you think you have made. Even though the reality is you, the, uh, the, at the end of the day, you did not really have, uh, the options you thought you had. The fact that you thought you had your options makes you responsible. So here you have God, in the example I've just given you, arranging an interaction between a burglar and a victim. The thief was going to steal, the burglar was going to steal from someone anyway, and he'll therefore be punished. The victim, he chose, so to speak, or was chosen for him, deserved to lose his money that he acquired dishonestly. So God really has squared the circle here, by interfering with the thief's free will, and no one is any the wiser that God has done so. God used the thief's, the burglar's free will to advance his own agenda. We don't know, <laughs> and this is the catch, we don't know when and how often God does this kind of thing. But one imagines it must be very frequent, because as the Novi says, or as Shlomo Melech says, God's agenda is always the last word, always the last word, despite the free will gift to mankind. So with all that in the background and with all that paradox, so to speak, being unraveled, let's get back to the story of Yechezkel, which, which is now a profound example of what we've just been discussing. Yechezkel made a free will choice not to speak in Tel Aviv, not to rebuke the people of Tel Aviv, not to prophesy when he was told to do so to the people of Tel Aviv, as God had told him to do. Originally, God sent Yechezkel to speak, rebuke, to prophesy to the Jews of Tel Aviv. When, when Yechezkel refused to speak, at that point, God says, okay, you don't want to follow my orders. You want to make a free will protest. I, God, will take advantage of that and advance my own agenda. God says, my intention was to use Yechezkel to speak, to rebuke, to prophesy to the Jews. Yechezkel wouldn't rebuke them with words. So now I will rebuke them anyway in a different manner. Instead of rebuking them with words, I will rebuke them with silence. The, the whole essence of what Yechezkel was supposed to do was rebuke, rebuke, prophesy and rebuke so that the people will take notice. God says, if you won't do it with words, I will make sure it's done through silence. The people of Tel Aviv thought the prophet had come to speak to them. Their takeaway from Yechezkel's silence will be that God is giving them the silent treatment. The silence of Yechezkel will instill in, instill in them the feeling that God feels they are no longer deserving of a prophet to speak to them. So that the original plan God outlined 
um, was a prophetic rebuke, re, 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 uh, prophetic rebuke from Yechezkel. Plan B, based on Yechezkel's silence, is that they will be rebuked anyway by wondering why God no longer wants to communicate with them. God wanted to rebuke them. Plan A was that they would re- they would be rebuked via the words of Yechezkel. Yechezkel says, I'm not doing it. I've got free will. I, uh, I'm not doing it. God says, fine. God says, fine. Atzas Hashem If they're not going to be rebuked with sound, they'll be rebuked with silence. And this is the way to understand the story. Rabbas Machshavas Belevish. Yechezkel, man has got uh, free will. Yechezkel refused. He made a free will decision not to rebuke the Jews. But the Atzas Hashem Hisokum. In the end, God gets his way, as they end up being rebuked by the silent treatment anyway. And God says, heads I win, tells you lose. So now, to push this agenda forward and ensure that the people recognize, get the message that God is rebuking them, only now God is doing it not through the words of a prophet, but by giving them the silent treatment, God tells Yechezkel, these two pasukim, God has not made a 180 degree U-turn. He's just adapted to the situation of a human being's free will, in this case Yechezkel, and achieving exactly what he wanted to achieve anyway, using the free will decision that Yechezkel has made. So he says, in verse, these are verses 25 and 26. You uh, should live as if you've got ropes around you and you shall not go out among the people. And our possible, your tongue shall cling to your palate, and you shall become silent. And you will not be allowed to rebuke them because they are a rebellious people. They will see Yechezkel's car in the driveway. <coughs> They'll see that Yechezkel is online. You'll see that Yechezkel's WhatsApp shows that he's connected. And yet they're unable to contact him, to see him, to interact with him. The Jews will soon get the message that this is a rebuke of silence from God. And so God's primary goal, God's primary agenda here, that the Jews should be rebuked, has been fulfilled. But at Hashem, he succumbed. And so God's primary goal agenda here um, is uh, fulfilled, brought to fruition, and the Jews will recognize, boy, what have we done now? God isn't even letting the Novi speak to us. Before, at least, the prophets, including Yechezkel, at least they spoke to us, and uh, the rebuke they gave us was bad enough. But the silent treatment must mean that the situation is much worse than we thought. So at the end of the day, everything that was on God's agenda is accomplished. The Jews get the rebuke they deserve, and Yechezkel is punished for his silence by being confined to his house. Rabos machshavos belevish, a man can think he can find a way out of anything, but ba'atzas Hashem hisokum, what God wants, God's end game will always be the uh, the thing that comes into fruition. That is a very um, 
powerful um, analysis of this paradox. Um, and uh, that's it. I mean, that's, that's the paradox is no more. Uh, there's a question here. One second. Yona's reason for not going to Nineveh was because he felt God would forgive the people anyway. What was Yechezkel's reason for refusing to carry out God's orders? What was the reason for, for Yechezkel? Who, who has asked this question? Oh, so you ask a very interesting question. This is not like Yona. This is not, this is, uh, not like Yona. Yona was, Yona had a, a, a mantra of Midas Hadin. His mantra of Midas Hadin was that whatever a person did, uh, whatever a person does wrong, they should be punished for. Uh, he believed in Midas Hadin, which is why God taught him the lesson of being in the fish and uh, where he had to ask for mercy, right? Because uh, God said to him, like um, Midas Hadin, you want Midas Hadin now? And Yona says, no, 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 I want Midas Arachamim now. He says, but God says to him, well, you didn't want Midas Arachamim for, for the people of Nimbai. So the, the, the situation there is completely different. You have a, you have a prophet there in Yona that doesn't want to prophesy to Nimbai because he doesn't want them to be saved. And you have a prophet here, Yechezkel, who desperately does want the Jewish people to be saved. And the reason why he doesn't want to deliver the prophecy is twofold. Number one of his humility, right? He doesn't feel he's the right person. Remember, he's seen the Megillah. He's seen what's going to come. He doesn't want to tell the people, be the one to tell the people, you know, Yushalayim is going to be destroyed. The base of Migdish is going to be destroyed. You're going to be in exile on and off for the next two and a half thousand years. Yechezkel ben Buzi is ben Odom. He's, you know, he's like Moshe Rabbeinu. He doesn't want to give this type of uh, uh, bad news to the Jewish people. That's one reason. Um, the other reason he doesn't want to do it, I think is a, a, much, a much deeper idea. Uh, and that is uh, concern of the Jewish people would say, oh, well, if that's going to happen... Uh, then what's the point in our changing, us changing our ways anyway? In other words, uh, you're going to get six. The teacher says you're going to get six wax, whatever happens. Now I want you to, you know, now I want you to uh, say sorry. So the kid thinks to himself, well, you know, I'm going to get six wax anyway. So, you know, what the heck? If I'm going to get six wax anyway, I might, tell, might as well tell the teacher what I think of him as well. Uh, he can't give me more than six wax or he, he, can't, he can only kill me once. So I think deep down, Yechezkel is concerned as well for the fact that the Jewish people, if he goes to the Jewish people and he gives them a prophecy of, of doom and gloom, of the destruction of the base of Migdash and the end of Yushalayim and God's presence leaving and uh, 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 exile on and off for the next two and a half thousand years, the people might take that and say, well, you know, what's to sh- and, and that's written in stone now, right? That's not going to be changed. That people might well say, well, you know, if that's the case, we might as well do whatever we want. And it wouldn't be a catalyst for Teshuvah. On the contrary, it might be a catalyst for saying, well, you know, uh, let's, eat, eat, let's eat and be merry because tomorrow we die. I think that's, uh, I think that's the difference between uh, the situation with Yon and the, sit- the situation here with Yechazkel. I think those are two reasons why Yechazkel didn't want to give the prophecy. Um, and that's it. Any, any, any questions? We're up to, where are we up to? We're up to chapter, verse 20. We've done verse 20. 
26, right? That's the verse we did today, verse 26. Um, I know this this idea that uh, comes out of this POSIC is uh, a little bit shocking to people and frightening to people. Um, but really, we ain't seen nothing yet. Um, we're not finished with this subject yet. And it is very frightening. And it is um, very disconcerting uh, to realize that sometimes God... Um, is involved in our free will choices. Um, and at the end of the day, what he wants to come out of a situation will always be, um, despite the fact that human beings have free will. Um, and, and, and again, there's a lot more to say on this, um, as we will discuss in next week's year, which, uh, which deals with uh, verse uh, 27. Um, and we'll be coming to the end of this chapter. And then we get into even deeper... Uh, hot water, deeper philosophical water as we start in uh, uh, in chapter 4 um, if there's any questions now is the time sure mm-hmm. that's a fantastic question a fantastic question so it appears from Shlomo Melach. God's got a project. Uh, the project will reach its fruition in God's time. It might be delayed by our free will decisions. In other words, if you look at, for example, uh, the obvious example of the Mashiach. The, the Mashiach is definitely going to come. The question is where? That's part of God's plan. That's part of God's salvation policy for the, for the whole of human humankind. The question is where? So that is a combination of God's bringing his project to fruition uh, and tied into that are the free will decisions that human beings make. So I'd say it's a combination of the two, that God has created a situation um, by giving human beings free will. I mean, the, the reality is if he wouldn't have given human beings free will, there would have been no point to the creation. We'd have just become robots, we'd have just become computers, which would have been of no use to, to man or beast, let alone God. So free will is an important gift, but uh, on the one hand, it has to be a free will decision uh, that a person makes, either a free will decision that is purely free or a free will decision that the person believes is a free will decision. So that's why the, the Gomorrah in Sanhedrin says there has to be an end game here. At some point in history, God will make sure the Jewish people are deserving of the Mashiach. In other words, there'll come a point where God will say, you know, Mashiach could have come at the time of Yechezkel. Mashiach could have come, you know, at the time of uh, the Rambam. Mashiach could have come in the 16th century. Mashiach could have come in the 19th century. You, you, you know, your own free will decisions and the way you behaved may, meant I had to put off uh, the end of the project. But there does come a point where God says, right, Be'ito, as uh, the prophet Yeshayahu says, Be'ito, there is an end game. There is a, a final moment where God says, I can't do anything more. I'll have to force the Jews to do tshuva. And as a result of that, Mashiach will come. So your question is, is extremely uh, deep in the sense that who is the boss? I mean, it's a fantastic question. I mean, the reality is God is the boss, right? Looking at it from the perspective of uh, create creation and the reliance of every human being 
on God for Moda Ani Lefonecha Melachai Vekayom Shechazarti Bin Nishmosi. You know that we thank God every morning for returning our soul. In that respect, God is the boss. But God, so to speak, has abrogated some part of his own greatness, some part of his own covered, so to speak, to allow us to be partially, at least, self-determined. And that can affect God's plan. The plan itself will always come to fruition. The question is when. So your question is, is extremely deep. And your question is extremely powerful. Who is the boss? So, I don't know. God is the boss and so are we. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that's the, <laughs> I think that's the answer. In a, in a certain respect, obviously God is the boss. He, he, he's the creator. He's responsible for everything that exists. On the other hand, uh, he has abrogated certain parts of his own power to authority. In other words, he's reduced... His power to an authority. As opposed to enforcing it, he's written it down and offered it to us to keep. It's within our hands, within our own hands, within our, our own free will decisions, whether to accept that authority and use it wisely or to use the power of our own free will to abuse it. And on that basis, God, generally speaking, does not interfere. But as we've just seen, if God's plan, if God wants something to be uh, an outcome, God has got no qualms about interfering with the free will of a human being, as long as the human being himself is unaware that God is interfering. Because then that will, that will interfere with the idea of reward and punishment. Now the, now the question you're asking goes even deeper. So we talk, uh, 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 I'm going to give you a very, very quick answer. And th this is, it, it's, it's an answer that will, that will not satisfy you, but it's going to have to. Um, the Ramchal addresses this, Ramosha Chaim addresses this. And he says it's important to realize that God doesn't have one plan. God has billions of plans. When we talk about God's will, we're talking about God's wills. God has a multitude, billions. There are seven billion people on this planet. He's got a plan for everybody as individuals. He's got a plan for communities that are combined. And he's got a, a, a plan for the whole of humankind. Says the Ramchal, sit down. I'm going to tell you something. Some of these wills are contradictory. Some of these wills are contradictory. Some of them are complementary and some of them are contradictory. God can will one thing on, one, on the one hand and he can will something diametrically opposed on the other hand. And that is not a, a paradox. And it, it, it is a method by which it allows a human being to exercise free will. Now, we're, we're well over time here, but I'm going to give you an example. Every year on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we do a, uh, we make this statement, Mi Yichya Mi Yomus, who will live and who will die? 
we say in the Son of Tokev. God seals the fate of every human being on Yom Kippur. So now, let's reflect. It's February. Your best friend, God forbid, has been diagnosed with a very dangerous disease and she's been told she's got two months to live. God forbid. And you pray for her. Why on earth are you praying for her? If she's got a good, if she's got a good din on Yom Kippur, so she'll recover. If she's got a bad din on Yom Kippur, so she won't recover. What have you, what's going to do with you? Why are you getting involved? The Fushalamer, and let's say Tehillim, and you know, we'll get a Tehillim group out for this person, and we've got everybody davening for, why? It's, it's Monavshoch. If God's, Wrote down in the book of life, she's going to live this year, so she'll live, she'll recover without your assistance. If God wrote down that she's going to die this year, then she's going to die, whether you say to him or you don't say to him. So the, the Ramchal says, yes, God does this. God creates a paradox within his own wills to allow human free will to abrogate one of those wishes. So that what a human being has got the ability to do is to push God into a corner and say this. Listen. And this is called what uh, the, the Ponovich Rebbe called, Ponovich Rob called a, 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 a um, how did he describe it? He gave God a, 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 a spitz. You give God a spitz. You poke God and you say, now listen to me. You've got two wills here. Will number one is I should have a very good year. Will number two is that my friend should die this year. You can't have them both. You can't have both. Because if my friend dies this year, that means I'm not having a good year. That means I'm having a terrible year. So you can't have both of your, you can't have both of your outcomes. And I'm pushing you in the corner. And I'm saying to you, God, like Davening, I'm saying to Hillim and whatever else we do, I'm pushing you in the corner and saying, you've got a decision to make here. You can't have it both ways. And God wants you to do that. God wants you to recognize the contradiction in his wills and force God to make a decision. The Gomorrah in Brochus, the Gomorrah in Brochus, the Gomorrah describes as a song we sing. Um, Rabbi Shmuel Cohen Godel, he entered the base of Migdosh and he saw the appearance of God. And he said, God says, Borcheni bini, bless me, my son. Like, very strange. So he said, so the Kohen Godel says to him, sure, I'll bless you. He says, get up from the chair of Midas Adin, of strict justice, and sit on the chair of Midas Arachamim. So God nodded his head. And that is it. That is the idea. That although God has got a plan, he hasn't got one plan. He hasn't got two plans. He's got a billion plans. Some of them are complementary. Some of them are contradictory. Our free will can determine which two, or there might be three or four or five or seven or a thousand of wills that are self-contradictory in a, in a class of wills, creating a paradox within God's will to be decided. God abrogates the, um, God will abrogate the solution to that paradox, to that contradiction, to the free will decisions of his people, which is in itself a magnificent 
unbelievable philosophical idea. And that's, I, I, it would normally take me, you know, two hours to explain that. But I've just given you in a nutshell because it's quarter past six. Um, so try and wrap your head around that. Um, um, but that is, in, in essence, the answer to your questions. God is not like a human being in the sense that, yes, you've got a project, you, you teach children, and you've got a, an end game in mind for that project. When, when, it, when, it de- when you're dealing with God's projects um, and God's wills, so to speak, there aren't always one or two or three or four or five or six or seven or eight uh, solutions or end games. There can be multiple end games and there can be multiple end games that are contradictory. All of them will fit into God's plan eventually. They may delay certain events in the project. But God has abrogated, so to speak, his ability. I'm not saying his ability, but he's abrogated his right to make a decision into the hands of human beings. If those human beings are prepared to go out on a limb and push him in the corner. And as Rav Kahneman said, give him a spitz, give him a poke. God is prepared to do that, which is, you know, a very Jewish idea. You won't find that in Christianity and you certainly won't find that in Islam. Uh, the only place you'll find that is in Judaism. And that is, that uh, comes straight out. Uh, it's partially mentioned in the Derech HaChem. It comes out in greater detail in Das Turunos, the Knowing Heart, which is the philosophical, the two philosophical, the strongest philosophical books of Ramusha Chaim Litzater. I hope that satisfies you partially, at least. Um, um, if it doesn't, then you can write to me and uh, I'll send you literature on it. Okay. Uh, uh, you can write to me. How can you write to me? Um, uh, um, you can write to me. You, you know Larry, right? You can get my details off Larry. Off Larry Lowenthal. Okay. I think that's it. Uh, Harry Glaub is very quiet. Doctoring over there in the corner. Uh, silence. Philip, very quiet. Okay. I hope this year didn't uh, shock too many people. Um, but, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cold soup. Listen, everybody should have a beautiful week. I'm afraid I've got to go now. I really don't feel, I'm really feeling under the weather. You know, Milud, uh, I might, yeah, I'm, I'm, th- I'm going back to bed now. So I might not be able to give Shir, Gamora Shir tonight. But uh, I'll, let, I'll let everybody know anyway. I'm running a bit. I'm running a bit of a fever. Thanks everybody for coming. Sorry, this year was uh, held under. I'm, I'm, I'm under. A, I'm sitting under a fever here. Um, but uh, I hope. I, ho- I hope it. I hope it. I hope it was clear. I hope what I said was clear. Uh, if you've got any questions, uh, please don't uh, hesitate to to ask. And we'll move on. We'll move on. Please God into chapter into verse twenty seven. Um, please God next week as we get deeper and deeper and deeper involved in this interaction between God and Yechezkel. Call to everybody. Everyone should have a great week and a great Shabbos. And I'll see you, please God, in health and happiness next Monday. Call to everybody. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.